the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is, and he's here to say hello. How are you? Welcome to a Thursday here for the 10th day of May, and hope it's been a good week so far for you. And heading into uh, Mother's Day, I just put a reminder out there, guys and gals, once again, don't forget that Sunday is indeed Mother's Day, so no excuses now. All right, and we'll try to bring you those excuses throughout uh, tonight's program as well. Got a good program lined up for you. There is a new poll out that gives some interesting insights into the mindset of California voters as we head into the midterm elections here in uh, June, less than what, uh, oh, scant three weeks here or so away. We're going to be joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee to share some insights concerning the polling. You might be surprised to find out who amongst the majority of Democrats, what name is a very strong contender for governor. And no, it's not somebody who is from Europe with a strong accent. (laughs) Although that's what it took last time, right? We'll talk about all that. We take a look ahead at the elections coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Michael Bennett hanging out in the KFAX Traffic Center. That'll help shape things up real nicely, get you home safe and sound tonight with a look at the road ahead. As we lead things off, let's talk about the weekend news. Wow, what a week it has been. So three American prisoners delivered back to the United States. This in anticipation of the upcoming summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un that is slated for June in Singapore. And uh, undoubtedly, the biggest news this week, of course, was the announcement, we covered it on this program, that the president has officially withdrawn the United States from the so-called Iranian denuclearization deal, a deal that, quite frankly, put a lot of the cards on the side of Iran, not much on ours, and caused us to write, uh, well, we didn't even write a check, did we? Nah, we just stacked the bills on pallets and flew it over. Let's get some insights as to This and other stories in the news of a political nature as we're joined by Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, offers context in relationship to what's going on in government dysfunction based on 30 years of experience managing corporate America. She has uh, been a candidate for Congress in the California 15th District, native Californian, and she is the publisher of Reimagine America. Her own radio show can be heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. And Joyce, as always, great to have you join us on the program. I understand you've been a little bit under the weather, but uh, glad you're rallying back and uh, wonderful to have you with us. 
Well, I hope I, I hope not to cough in your ear. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, maybe not coughing, but a lot of hiccuping going on. At least some would claim that's the case. I was reading some comments by House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, who says, uh-oh, Trump's withdrawal from the nuclear deal with Iran is a big hiccup and makes the world less safe. Is that necessarily true, though? Did this deal somehow magically struck between Iran and uh, President then-President Obama magically make all of the aspirations, the nuclear aspirations of Tehran disappear? Uh, no. Uh, it, we, we're, you know, I, I love revisionist history. You know, it's not just that we teach it to our children, but that our politicians think we're all senile. We don't remember what happened a few years ago. But the reason that the JCPOA was not was so easily terminated, or our participation in it, which will effectively terminate it, was so easily done by Mr. Trump's enormous, I mean, I love that signature, <clears throat> uh, is that Obama could never submit the agreement to the Senate for ratification as a treaty. Now, the difference between an agreement and a treaty is an agreement is between a president and some other number of politicians in foreign countries. A treaty is a, an agreement between the United States of America and whoever we were negotiating with. So the Iranians wanted all their money up, up front because they knew that this deal was on life support from day one. Thus, we piled the money on on pallets and shipped it off to them, and then we sent some wire transfers for another $150 billion, with a B, dollars. And we saw some of those billions of dollars coming back last night over the Golan Heights. We did indeed. In fact, there wasn't much news coverage of it, but... Um Late in the day, just about this time ago, uh, ago yesterday, there were oh twenty plus Scud missiles. There were sh- shot the, the the shots fired over the bows, so to speak, which may be uh, more saber rattling than anything else. But you you make an important distinction here, even as some members of Congress are upset about this, that the original agreement was in fact not a treaty and therefore not binding to the United States. So you can say, hey, it's the equivalent of having a a friendly handshake between two international leaders, and uh, now that one of them is no longer a leader, at least of this country, effectively could at any moment then make this so-called agreement null and void. Yes. It was It was an executive agreement. It was not a treaty. treaty that, that's a very important distinction that very few people in the media, in any of the media, have, have brought to the fore and informed the reminded the American people. And let's remember who stood in the Capitol Rotunda and said, over my dead body, none other than Chuck Schumer or Robert Mendez, if you want just a couple of examples of, of members of the Senate who today are going, oh, oh, way is me. Um, who absolutely refused to allow this agreement to come 
to the floor of the United States Senate, Senate and be debated. So this is a bipartisan failure on the part of the Senate to agree, to advise and consent to the JCPOA. Never happened. John McCain opposed it. I mean, it was bipartisan. It was powerful. Corker opposed it. What we did, what the Senate did, was say, we oppose it so much that we're going to impose on you, President Obama and now President Trump, the, the, respo- the responsibility to every six months certify to us, Congress, that the Iranians are complying with the deal and therefore should not be sanctioned. I mean, this is, this is not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, yay, we, we should have torn it up, as some of my really good friends are saying. Um, because I always think if you're sitting at the table, there's hope, you know, to get a better deal. And the points that Trump has made about ballistic missiles, about Iran's, Iran being the most meddlesome terrorist supplier of money to terrorists around the world. I mean, these are all true facts. Their current involvement with Hezbollah in the Gaza, in uh, Lebanon, where they won seats in the parliament just this week, and in Syria, where they got their tails handed to them today. Um, none of these are accidents. I mean, how many of our listeners have seen the picture of the Ayatollah, uh, not the I'm sorry, the president of Iran, the president of Turkey, and Vladimir Putin together in Ankara wanting, saying, we're going to decide the future of Syria. Now, if that doesn't make your heart skip a beat and think about what other kind of mischief they're up to, um, you're not paying attention. Well, clearly so. And, of course, the, the big level of liability is in the direction of Israel. And yet, ironically, Benjamin Netanyahu, who I have to believe at some point, if not consulted at the very least, had a heads up that the president was going to do this. Certainly this had been a comment that he had been making um, on the campaign trail, that this was a bad deal. And if folks have a memory, going back to 2015, you know that I repeatedly said so on this program as well, that it seemed to all be weighted in favor of Tehran. They basically get a huge payday, and we get not much at all. And so... Uh, Interesting to note that as much as you could say, well, if anybody could potentially be at risk here and be upset about this deal, it would be Israel. And yet Benjamin Netanyahu has been very pleased by a couple of very key decisions by this president, not least of which, of course, is the pulling out of the so-called Iranian nuclear deal. And then, too, of course, uh, movement of the United States embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So if the guy that's got really the the most at stake here, Benjamin Netanyahu, doesn't have a major problem with this, I think that's also very telling. Well, I think think that Netanyahu has a problem either way, which is why he, one must hand it to the Mossad again. You know, I mean, uh, when you talk about 
fearless uh, undercover operators. Uh, they've really um, over overachieved this time. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the Iranians have never stopped working on a bomb. They have been busy testing ballistic missiles. Their aim is very clear. First, we're going to take out um, <clears throat> Amman and Tel Aviv, and then we're coming for you, Washington and Baltimore and Char and um, Charleston, etc. And of course, the irony in this, Joyce, is that uh, and all the funds and with which to do all of this. Uh, they're all American greenbacks. There's the there's the sweet irony of it all. If you've just joined us, we are visiting today with Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, is the publisher of Reimagine America. Her program, by the same title, Reimagine America, can be heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll we'll pivot a bit from what's going on in the Middle East in relationship to Iran. Talk about another rogue nuclear nation that may be closer to the bargaining table, but is it really, when it's all said and done, going to be any closer towards nuclear disarmament? My guess is probably not. But we'll see what Joyce Cordy has to say. We'll talk about President Trump's upcoming summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un as Lifeline continues. All right, 517, traffic continues. Well, you know that. You're sitting in it. Look, I'm giving you big news, like, you know, the sun is shining, right? Let's see what's going on. Traffic-wise, we got an update for you with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the other big grounds-breaking stories this week is word now that the summit has been set. It is going to be in Singapore on June the 12th between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Uh, While I understand there's a lot of excitement about this, and some people have even made noises about, well, they ought to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, maybe we need to set our expectations a little bit more realistically that this whole business, Joyce, of saber-rattling and then North Korea getting what it wants, which essentially is either going to be foreign aid, money, whatever it might be, this has been a cycle that has taken place between the West and North Korea for, oh, I don't know, 70 years now now. I suppose we wouldn't or shouldn't all together be surprised that this meeting is set, uh, nor should we have expectations that somehow that means the the walls or the doors of North Korea are opening and they're suddenly going to embrace. When they say they want reunification, I guess we need to be clear. That doesn't mean North Korea wants the South to become, uh, or, or let me phrase that again. It's not that North Korea wants to have um, the absorption of South Korea into the North, but it's just the other way around. They want the South to look like the North, and therein lies the problem. Uh, Yes, or maybe, you know, I mean, I've had some moments lately when when I've looked at um, Kim and and wondered, who are you and what have you done with the real Kim? (laughs) Um. But uh, a man who uh, kills his own um, family, who killed, it was his uncle with the nerve agent and um, his another one of his uncles with um, an artillery gun. Um, in other words, he blasted him into, there was nothing left. Um, <clears throat> is is not someone who I think 
um, aspires, although he likes Western stuff. I mean, he loves Dennis Rodman, and he likes Western movies. His so father had a collection of something like 20,000. It's probably the largest collection outside of, I don't know, Netflix. His father allegedly had like 20,000 Western films on videotape. Right. And, you know, I mean, maybe he does aspire to, you know, have, having his own feudal empire in which everybody's, you know, um, but, but, but then that's what he has, where all the money, all the power, all the gracious living is focused in the Kim dynasty and everybody else is a slave. So when you've got, you know, as you see from aerial photos, when you have the dark in the north and the light in the south, uh, 65 years later, after the guns went silent, the north would like to absorb the south not because they want to be westernized, but because they're envious of the economics of South Korea. And uh, I think there is some um, real opportunity there, but it's quite small. Um, The power of North Korea is in that nuclear program um, and as has been said by people far smarter than me, they saw what happened to other people who gave up their nukes. Um, <clears throat> so that's all the bad news. I mean, the good news is he's very young. He's got a couple of choices. I don't believe that North Korea, the North Korean people can be enslaved for his entire lifetime. That's another half century or so. I'm not sure that the North Koreans with a prosperous China, a prosperous South Korea on both sides of them can any longer be kept in the state. Uh, and so I think there is some economic pressure on him. But, uh, and, and I think the Chinese don't, they don't, the Chinese do not want two things. The Chinese do not want a really nuclear-powered North Korea because it's too risky for them, okay? You can never tell when they would kick off this guy and and he's going to hit China before he hits the USA with a lucky strike. So the Chinese are concerned about the level of his sophistication in nuclear technology because they don't really want him as a vassal of theirs to be an independent actor in the nuclear club. So they've applied economic pressure now that they've never applied before. It has nothing to do with, well, it has a little to do with Chi understanding that you can stroke, uh, you can get almost anything by stroking Trump's ego. Okay? So I think making Trump feel like he's his buddy is in Chief long-term 2025 China over Uber Uber strategy. The other part of that is um, that these economic sanctions, which were passed at the Security Council level, even if they've been violated by Russia and China, have been incredibly effective. So I think there is about a one percent chance that. Kim really wants to nuclear disarmament. But there's a 99% chance that he has read the history of previous efforts when 
you know, well-intentioned American presidents have said, hey, we'll help you grow economically if you get with this nuclear um, denuclearization program. And what they've successfully done is strung it out, getting the bennies, all of the uraniums, they've, they've been paying attention, um, and and then um, going on doing what they think is best in their best interest while what they think we're not looking, okay? The question is, have we learned our lesson? Are we going to be tough enough? And if we are tough enough, how will the North Koreans respond? I don't think they will respond well. And therein makes this just as fraught as the Iranian situation, if not more. And you think? Well, they become scenarios that in both circumstances are, at a lot of levels, extremely untenable. Um, which is sadly the disappointment in the lack of involvement by the United Nations that really ought to have a major stake in this, since there are so many countries that are at risk here. Um, And, you know, problematically in both cases, I think that we can find some puppet mastering going on, certainly guaranteed in the case of North Korea by China. And you almost have to wonder, hmm, okay, if China's pulling the strings there to uh, create North Korea as a rock in the shoe of the United States, then certainly over in the Middle East, a enemy of China and an enemy of ours, Russia, is doing the same in relationship to Syria and now potentially aligning themselves with Iran. It becomes a very, very difficult scenario, and I have to wonder, the new appointment of Secretary of State Mike Pompei, given the complexities here, in in your opinion, is this president, is this Secretary of State up for the challenge? I think Mike Pompeo is a very smart guy. Um, and he is less a hawk than people believe he is. Um, you know, I listened to every word. I was in Washington, D.C., so I listened to every word in that confirmation hearing. And, you know, I think he's a very smart, I've followed his career. He's a very smart guy. Uh, he is not um, a hothead. He's a calm, calculating Um, an extraordinarily talented man. So we will see how successful he is. But you see, I see China in both of these scenarios. China plays footsie with our friends in Iran, um, right along with the Russians. And once in a while, uh, when they're thinking about their China 2025 and the Silk Road uh, project, uh, we have seen very friendly relations all of a sudden between the Russians and the Chinese. So, you know, I think I think we've got um, uh, I think Mattis and Pompeo and um, the one cabinet member I've been really uh, uh, surprised by in a positive way is Steve Munchen. Um, and I think there are possibilities to manage this crisis in the making to a soft landing. But it ain't going to be easy. And I think Mike Pompeo, because he has 
more, I, the person who I, I, I'm truly fearful of is John Bolton. I mean, well, John yeah, Bolton. Bowen has, uh, you know, Bowen certainly has the CV, but he also has. Um, a bit of a history of a tendency to go rogue, which uh, which could be not only problematic uh, from a foreign relations national security standpoint, but then you have to wonder uh, how long he may last and stay in the good stead of President Trump. Well, I think that's maybe Mike Pompeo and and uh, General James Mattis's biggest challenge, um, because. Uh, the difference between Mattis and Pompeo is both of them are military. Pompeo graduated first in his class at West Point. Both of them are keenly and personally aware of the consequences of war. That it's not them who are going to go fight it, it's their sons. And their grands, and in Mattis's case, uh, his nephews and grandnephews, um, and and John Kelly, who has already is a gold star father. Um, these are men who understand the consequences in a way that John Bolton's PhD intellectualism does not. You know, I mean, Bolton is 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 the wild card here. Uh, because he emboldens um, the most impetuous side of Donald Trump. So we shall see. I'm, I'm actually heartened by the fact that it is Pompeo who has driven this negotiation with North Korea, because Pompeo is equally smart and tough. Um, I don't think he will yield to flattery. He understands the intelligence well. Um, and I am not, I have, I have, uh, we need to lower our expectations of what comes out of that June 12th um, meeting as much as possible. Uh, there is about a 1% chance, according to the best minds in the country, that we will come out of that June 12th meeting with much to cheer about, except the fact that we got back three Americans who are truly um, traumatized, but God, but thank God they're alive and walking. Um, and, and there was a moment earlier in the day when I <clears throat> actually suggested to someone that maybe if Iran had given back some of the five hostages they have, we wouldn't have walked from the JCPOA, at least not now. We would have waited till next time. Yeah, the, so, t- the timing certainly seems to be suspect uh, at certain levels, and, and, and perhaps to wrap a bow around this, uh, Joyce, some have even suggested that, my goodness, with the iron in the fire so large and dealing with North Korea, now we've suddenly ran and um, started an now address um, ran, which certainly needs to be done. Uh, I'm, I'm full agreement of that, but the timing of this might lead some to wonder if, it, if we're just trying to get some good news stories going over here so that nobody's looking over there. Not that Robert Mueller would enter into any of these conversations. <laughs> Joyce Cordy, you can get some great insights and continue to do so on her program, 
Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. right here, uh, not here, but on here on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. You can also find more about her organization and her fine work at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Always a delight and an education to have Joyce Cordy with us. It's 535. I know, you're late, I'm late. We'll get caught up here. Let's get uh, caught up on traffic first, shall we? Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, of course, we're here in an election year, midterm election, and uh, California primaries coming up in June, getting into the heads of voters. Always a fascinating, um, shall we say, sachet <laughs> through, uh, I don't know, every, all the extremes, I guess, from sanity into uh, complete unbridled madness. And uh, the results of the most recent survey of California voters on attitudes uh, demonstrates that also to be very true. We're going to get into the minutia of some of this as we're joined by Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston. Brian, as always, uh, great to have you on the program. I, I'm, I'm with great fascination, and I appreciate you sending a copy of this survey over to me because as we're looking at attitudes of liberal versus conservative and, and, and moderate and who voted for what candidate in the last election in November of um, 16, I, I find it, I don't know, a little bit unsettling, particularly when you see the candidates that they've supported in the past and intend to support in the future, that one of the most telling numbers of all of this is that of all of the respondees, that they would identify themselves, self-identified now, as either Protestant, non-denominational Christian, Catholic, um, evangelical Christian, or Jewish, and my goodness, that accounts for something like 66%. And yet, if you look at the way they say they have voted or will vote, you have to wonder, okay, do we somehow pigeonhole and leave our faith in one location before we step into the ballot box? Yeah, well, Craig, you're exactly right. There's, uh, there's something, obviously culturally that has been going on and uh, now we're seeing something this poll that that you referenced is uh, actually a poll that was generated at the request of one american news a relative and it is an actual i'll be perfectly honest it's a relatively conservative news outlet um but it's a poll of california voters and it does actually uh skew amazingly more conservative than times past, and I'm, I'm going to say this, an opinion poll is just that. It's an opinion poll. It uses a sample of voters. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a rather broad sample, and many voters who, who did vote for Hillary Clinton and uh, are, uh, are rethinking that. We know that California voted for Hillary Clinton, but there's there's another change that's going on right now, and I think we're witnessing it on a number of levels. I want to say the first is clearly uh, President Trump and what he's done. Um, the dominant media culture wants to focus on his foibles, his personal weaknesses, his style. It's something that I think all of us, we've talked about it before the election, Craig, and now uh, even after. You know, he's, he's got a different style. 
than most most of us are typically comfortable with. But what I become very comfortable with is what he does, particularly in the area of policy. And I always look first through the lens of the right to life. And he's been extraordinary on that, just extraordinary, his judicial appointments. But on a, on a, on a bigger scale, this is what I think this particular poll from One American News is, is underscoring. California is an interesting state, and California has, in fact, um, reflected uh, some traditional values historically. Now, we know in the last 10, 15 years, it's moved further left, but a lot of that has been due to the reportage. You, know, you and I have been around a while. We're not that old, Craig. We're not that old. But uh, I know historically when we talked about opinion polls in California, it's been the Harris Field Poll. And that, of course, is commissioned by media outlets, specifically L.A. Times, Sacramento Bee, uh, the Mercury News. And they would go in and they'd commission a poll, and those questions always skewed to the left. Those conclusions always skewed to the left. And then that was the news story, and we would have to respond to that. And very often I would have to point out, look at the nature of the question. Look at the nature of what's being asked. That's often what determines a conclusion. And so I'm not saying that this now is terribly different because obviously the outlet is a more conservative outlet. But there is something happening now, not just in California, but across the nation. And literally every day, the, the situation with Iran and demanding that that be reconsidered, the situation literally the same day, of, of the release of the North Koreans and the potential for peace in North Korea, which is beyond most people's comprehension that that would ever happen. It's happening. There's something happening because of the actions taken by Donald Trump. But in a larger sense, California has actually always responded well when there's clarity of purpose in public policy. We just also saw yesterday, was it yesterday, the day before, the passing of George Dugmajan, a man I met, I was honored to meet him, a very quiet man, a good man. He had clarity of purpose. He was, I would say, the last good Republican governor of California. We know that throughout California, you can never elect, elect any Republican unless Democrats cross over to support them. And they always cross over, not for liberal Republicans. They cross over for people with clarity of purpose. And, you know, we, we think of, of really how we, we got Arnold Schwarzenegger. When Arnold Schwarzenegger ran, he declared himself to be a fiscal conservative, to be a social conservative. He told me personally. And he then changed when he got in office. He did not retain those that standard. But people respond to a standard. There's something happening. California's made sounds of breaking away from the union. California has many sounds that are absurd. Um, and again, part of it is the media has been controlled by relativism, by Hegelian relativism, which believes, and we'll talk about, we've talked about it before, but that basically is that if there's truth, it's synthesized truth. You know, I tell you what really caught my attention in this poll, and we, we've touched on this uh, briefly in past conversations, 
Brian, and, and that is the look ahead to the gubernatorial race. Now, of course, California has something odd here. Uh, when we go to the polls in June, it will not be Democrats voting for their candidate and Republicans voting for theirs. Um, rather, it, it's it's so-called the top-tier voting, which means come the general election in November, it's not going to be Democrat versus Republican. It's going to be the top two vote-getters without regard to party. When you would listen to that and think, oh, boy, is that rigged? Well, perhaps so. Certainly seems to skew toward the uh, the ruling party, which we all know in California is the Democrat Party, but to see in this poll that Republican candidate John Cox is actually beating Gavin Newsom by a point, and I would have looked at this and thought, huh, in California, uh, poor John Cox would be down there with Delane Easton when it comes to attention um, from the electorate. But just the opposite is true, which I think lends some credence to what you're suggesting, and that is that there are those here in California that don't buy into the party line and do want to see change. That's right. And as I said, we've been dominated, particularly in the last 15, 20 years, by a media culture that is relativist. And that is to say, they make up new principles of truth. Uh, you know, Caitlyn Jenner is a woman. You better call him or her right now. And that's, that suddenly is truth. And it's right off, and, and how, how do people believe that? It's because they're relativists, they're Hegelian relativists, and they believe many things with a straight face. Our founders did not believe in synthetic truth, that you had to learn at Berkeley what's true and what's not, you had to be really, really smart to find out what's true. No, our founders said that truth is actually self-evident, that it's revealed in nature, in the laws of nature. And it tends to be conservative Republicans that take that stance, that say, if we saw the debate, and I thought John Cox did a great job in the debate, he said, I'm a businessman. These people here, everybody else on the stage, we're all politicians. So I have to deal with reality. He deals with fiscal reality. He deals with, he deals with objective reality. That's refreshing to people. And people do respond to that, particularly when they're tired of relativistic garbage being presented to them as true. So there is still, I'm not saying every Californian is changing their mind. I'm not saying that. We'll always have these relativists, and they'll, they'll demonstrate, they'll try to force themselves onto our laws, but we need to make laws based on the laws of nature, on self-evident truth. And there's a longing in people to have that kind of sense in government. So I think there's great hope, and, and I think it's because there are people willing to stand and present what is objectively true. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, I think, that this poll, even though it is from a conservative news organization, it looks like it's pretty comprehensive. A lot of, a lot of the voters, as you pointed out, Craig, they're, 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 uh, they're lefty voters. They admit who they voted for. Well, and what's interesting about this is that some of the responses are responses that you would expect, like 49% of respondents voted for Hillary Clinton. Well, in this state, that doesn't altogether come as any sort of a shock or surprise. But some of the other answers, again, suggesting that there may be some tide turning, that sort of, you know, get along with the majority is now causing people to say, we've gone 
so far over the edge at so many levels to so many extremes that Californians, I mean, look, we're here debating whether or not we want to split the state into, I don't know, three ways, six ways, whatever the <laughs> the latest uh, uh, configuration is. If, if we're that frustrated with each other, then clearly it's time to rethink what we've been doing, and it's apparent to me as a result of this new polling that maybe Californians are starting just to do that, which ought to give all of us uh, cause for uh, celebration. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Re- uh, Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, thanks so much for sharing those great insights on this new poll. 550, let's uh, quickly get you updated. I know we're way late here, so let's see what's going on traffic-wise. The latest again with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's fairly common. Folks go out, and because it's their old alma mater, or they're aware of uh, maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing, or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week, that it must be the right place to send their kids, because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might uh, beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and uh, bookmark called collegeguide.org that gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribe for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. And, John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William S. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of, of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our co- network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the, the popular rankings, I, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric 
academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as, like, lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their Ph.D. All right. That said, one of the, the things that you outline inside of this survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, but has many millions of dollars in resources, that is squandering them on political activism or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like, like a, a resort. Um, and, and several schools we identified, uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-Christian and and, and I have to say, um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the, the, school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying $40,000 a year so that their kids can be exposed to it. Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources, and I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes, why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better-known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right, with all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's a really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and in the universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. 
So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts to the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. The thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's That's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right, and the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, Choosing the Right College, an invaluable resource, and again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.